men with untreated alcoholism, and they usually go back to drinking and end up dying from alcoholism. You know, I think one of the things that's our responsibility as older members to do is to say to the newcomer, you bet you, there's a lot of power in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. You bet you that power will keep you sober for a period of time. But if you don't do more than just come to the fellowship, sooner or later, you're going to end up going back to drinking and you're going to die from untreated alcoholism. The real solution of alcoholism lies within the vital spiritual experience through the working of the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. He gives us two powers here. The power of the fellowship that's going to support us, but the power of the common solution which is going to change us. Now, he's going to spend the first half of this chapter explaining to you and I why fellowship alone is not sufficient. And then he's going to spend the last half of this chapter explaining what the common solution really is. So let's look and see if we can't see why fellowship alone is not sufficient. Let's go to page 20. He said, you may already ask yourselves why it is that all of us became so very ill from drinking. Doubtless you are curious to discover how and why in the face of excellent opinion to the contrary, we have recovered from a hopeless condition of mind and body. Now, if you're an alcoholic who wants to get over it, you may already be asking, well, what do I have to do? Well, it's the purpose of this book to answer such questions specifically. We'll tell you what we've done. Before going into detailed discussion, we may well to summarize some points as we see them. Remember, last night we talked about precisely, specifically, with clear-cut directions. Well, here's some of those specific things. How many times people said to us, I can take it or leave it alone, why can't he? Why don't you drink like a gentleman or quit? That fellow can't handle his liquor. Why don't you try a beer and wine and lay off the hard stuff? His willpower must be weak. He could stop if he wanted to. She's such a sweet girl. I should think he'd stop for her sake. The doctor told him that if he ever drank again, it would kill him. But there he is, all it up again. Now, these are commonplace observations on drinkers which we hear all the time. Back of them is a world of ignorance and misunderstanding. We see these expressions refer to people whose reactions are very different from ours. You see, I, I, a lot of people have us to believe today that we're in a, into denial. I've never been in denial about anything. But I've been into ignorance most of my life. <laughs> we have an ignorance problem. We don't have a denial problem. Back of them is a world of ignorance and misunderstanding. Now, those expressions that Joe just read is going to refer to two different kinds of drinkers. Let's look at the drinkers that they would refer to. First one is the moderate drinkers. drinkers. Moderate drinkers have little trouble giving up liquor entirely if they have a good reason for it. They can take it or leave it alone. We talked about them last night. They're the ones that get a slightly tipsy, out of control, beginnings of a nauseous feeling. Alcohol is no big deal for them. If they have any problems with it, period, they'll just quit drinking, period. They don't have any trouble with it. Those expressions that Joe dread up here would refer to the moderate drinker. Now let's look at a second one. Then we have a certain type of hard drinker. He may have the habit bad enough to gradually impair him physically and mentally. It may even cause him to die a few years before his time, if a sufficiently strong reason 
ill health, falling in love, change of environment, or the warnings of a doctor becomes the operative. This man can stop or moderate, although he may find it difficult and troublesome, and he may even need a little medical attention. We call this guy the heavy or the hard drinker. They drink similar to we alcoholics drink, but they're not alcoholic. If a good enough reason presents itself, they'll do one of two things. They may learn to moderate their drinking. They do not have the physical allergy. They may quit drinking entirely. They do not have the obsession of the mind. They drink like we alcoholics drink, but they're not alcoholic. And you see them all the time. They're the ones that say, when I was in the service, I was an alcoholic also. And I got out of the service, and I got married and went to church and quit drinking, and I don't see why you can't quit drinking. Those expressions that Joe read back here a while ago would refer to the heavy or the hard drinker, too. But what about the real alcoholic? Now, he may start off as a moderate drinker, which many of us did. He may or may not become a continuous hard drinker. Many of us stayed periodic. But at some stage of his drinking career, he begins to lose all control of his liquor consumption once he starts to drink. Now we're going to describe the real alcoholic. Here's a fellow who's been puzzling you, especially in his lack of control. He does absurd, incredible, tragic things while drinking. He's a real Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Anybody, Anybody in here like, like that? that in here? Yeah. Huh? Okay. Charlie said last night that I drank moderately for a long period of time, and I crossed over that line into alcoholism. I don't know what line he was talking about, but I was drunk when I went over. <laughs> I know that. He's, he is seldom mildly intoxicated. He's always more or less insanely drunk. Anybody like that in here? Okay. His disposition while drinking resembles his normal nature, but little. I always get good looking and out of debt, just like that, <laughs> when I drink. I, I end up, when I have four or five drinks, I look like Lee. Yeah, yeah, every time. <laughs> every time. He may be one of the finest fellows in the world. You let him drink for a day, and he frequently becomes disgustingly and even dangerously antisocial. Anybody like that in here? Wants to fight all the time. He has a positive genius for getting tied at exactly the wrong moment, particularly when some important decision must be made or engagement kept. He is often perfectly sensible and well-balanced concerning everything except liquor. But in that respect, he is incredibly dishonest and selfish. He often possesses special abilities, skills, and aptitudes. has a promising career ahead of him. He uses gifts to build up a bright outlook for his family himself and then pulls the structure down onto the head by a senseless series of sprees. Anybody like that in here? Mm-hmm. You betcha. He's the fellow who goes to bed so intoxicated he ought to sleep the clock around. Yet early the next morning he searches madly for the bottle he misplaced the night before. If he can afford it, he may have liquor concealed all over his house to be certain no one gets his entire supply away from him to throw down his wa- the waste pipe. Pills and I on Friday used to buy a lug of whiskey. That's three. Three fists or three quarts, three gallons, whatever. But three. One to share and one to hide from each other. <laughs> She'd drink my whiskey if she found it. As matters grow worse, he begins to use a combination of high-powered sedative and liquor to quiet his nerves so he can go to work. Then comes a the day when he simply cannot make it and gets drunk all over again. 
Perhaps he goes to a doctor which gives him morphine or some sedative to which to taper off. Then he begins to appear at hospitals and treatment centers. Excuse me, sanitariums. <laughs> Same thing, we just got a different word for them. <laughs> this is by no means a comprehensive picture of the true alcoholic, as our behavior patterns vary. But this description should identify him roughly. You know, thank God today, if our government has ever spent anything right in the field of alcoholism, it's been in education of the public as to what alcoholism is and what it isn't. A lot of the stigma has been removed from alcoholism because of that. And many, many people are getting here today before they have to do all these things that describe the real alcoholic. But I'll guarantee you, if you're a real alcoholic, you found yourself in there somewhere. At least one of those are going to match you. In my case, practically ever one. One in particular. If he can afford it, he may have liquor concealed all over his house to be certain no one gets his entire supply away from him. Seven years after I got sober, I sold a 45,000, 40-acre broiler chicken operation. And for years after that, sometimes I would meet the guy that bought it and he would wave and grin and he'd say, Hey, Charlie, we have found another one. <laughs> Referring to partially empty vodka bottles. Under rocks, in hollow trees, behind corner posts, coming out of feed bins. He found them for years. I certainly found myself. Now, here's the question. Why does he behave like this? If hundreds of experiences have shown him at one rate means another debacle with all its attendant suffering and humiliation, why is it that he takes that one drink? Why can't he stay on the water wagon? The moderate drinker can. The heavy drinker can. Why can't the alcoholic? What has become of the common sense and willpower that he still sometimes displays with respect to other matters? Perhaps there never will be a, will be a full answer to these questions. Opinions vary considerably as to why the alcoholic reacts differently from normal people. We're not sure why. Once a certain point is reached, little can be done for him. We cannot answer the riddle. We know that while the alcoholic keeps away from drink, as he may do for months or years, he reacts much like other men. We're equally positive that once he takes any alcohol, whatever, into his system, something happens both in the bodily and mental sense, which makes it virtually impossible for him to stop. The experience of any alcoholic will abundantly confirm this. Now, these observations, the ones I just read regarding this real alcoholic, these observations would be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first drink, thereby setting the terrible cycle in motion. Therefore, the main problem the alcoholic center in his mind rather than in his body. Would you read that again, please? Therefore, the main problem the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. You know, I can't get drunk if I don't take a drink. And I can't take a drink unless my mind tells me it's okay to do so. And always, just before I take a drink, I'm stone cold sober. No alcohol in my system at all. 
So my real problem centers in my mind telling me I can drink rather than my body that ensures that I can't. If you ask him why he started on that last bender, the chances are he'll offer you any one of a hundred alibis. Sometimes the excuses have a certain plausibility, but none of them really makes light in the havoc I think alcoholics drinking about creates. They sound like the philosophy of the man who, having a headache, beats himself on the head with a hammer so that he can't feel the ache. If you draw this fallacious reasoning to the attention of an alcoholic, he will laugh it off or become irritated and refuse to talk. <laughs> Once in a while, he may tell the truth. You know, strange as it may seem, there are times when we alcoholics tell the truth, not too often, but once in a great while. And I had a lady in al her husband was still drinking, and she came to me one day and she said, Charlie, all he does is lie, lie, lie. She said, how can you tell when one of you guys are lying? I said, lady, watch him closely. And if you see his lips moving, he's probably lying to you, all right. And then I said, you want me to tell you how to keep him from lying? And she said, yeah, yeah, yeah. I said, don't ask him those stupid questions. I said, said, he has no more idea why he took that first drink than you have. Some drinkers have excuses with which they are satisfied part of the time. But in their hearts, they really do not know why they do it. Once this malady has a real hold, they are a baffled lot. There is the obsession that someday, somehow, they will beat the game, but they often suspect they are down for the count. Now, there's the word obsession. And remember, an obsession of the mind is an idea that overcomes all ideas to the contrary. An obsession of the mind is an idea that is so strong it can make you believe a lie. And the great obsession of every alcoholic is someday, somehow, we're going to beat the game. Somehow, some, someday, somehow, we're going to find some kind of liquor we can drink without getting drunk. Someday, somehow, we're going to find a place we can drink. Someday, somehow, we'll find a group of people. And that obsession is so strong that it makes us believe that it's okay to drink. And we take a drink, and that triggers the allergy, and then we get drunk. So the real problem centers in the mind telling us we can drink rather than the body that ensures we can't drink. Page 24, first paragraph, all squiggly writing. <laughs> the fact is that most alcoholics, for reasons yet obscure, have lost the power of choice in drink. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We are unable at certain times to bring into consciousness with sufficient force to memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago without defense against the first drink. See, alcohol can't do anything to us unless it does something for us. And see, I have a wonderful memory. It's just short when it comes to drinking. I can't remember the divorce court. I can't remember the car wreck. I can't remember the fights. Only thing I can remember when I get ready to drink again is the sense and ease of comfort which might come at once by taking a few good drinks. Drinking always changed the way that I thought and the way that I felt. If taking a drink for a guy like me would make me look like my friend Lee over here, wouldn't you want to drink? (laughs) It did always did that for me. See, it can't do anything to me unless it does something 
for me, you see. And we've already learned our willpower is practically non-existent. Because when there's a battle going on between the willpower and the obsession of the mind, the obsession of the mind will win out every time because it's stronger than my will. We're without defense against that first drink. The almost certain consequences that follow taking even a glass of beer do not crowd into the mind to deter us. If these thoughts occur, they are hazy and readily supplanted with the old threadbare idea that this time we shall handle ourselves like other people. There is a complete failure of the kind of defense that keeps one from putting his hand on a hot stove. You know, if you, if you burn your hand on a hot stove, chances are you'll always remember that. Chances are you'll never go back and put your hand on a hot stove again because you remember the pain and the suffering. You know, I remember back during the Depression years, back in the 1930s. There's a few of you in here old enough to remember those days, too. And we didn't have very much in those days. We, we, we were so poor, as Joe says, that we, we spell poor with three O's in it. We were poor. And you didn't have hot and cold running water. You didn't have forced air heat. You didn't have all these things we got today. In the wintertime, we, we burned whatever we could to stay warm. We burned wood. We burned coal. We burned walnuts. We burned whatever we could get our hands on. Other people's houses. It didn't matter. Other people's houses. But it didn't make any difference how poor you are. Cleanliness was still next to godliness. And everybody in the family had to take a bath on Saturday night. Whether you needed a bath or not is beside the point. Everybody takes a bath on Saturday night. One time in the middle of the winter, Mother had heated the bath water on an old heating stove sitting in our living room, put that water in a number three zinc wash tub sitting behind that old heating stove. Everybody in the family takes a bath in the same water. Now, I'm the baby of the family. Time it got to me, the crud would be about that thick on it. Mother said, get in there and get yourself clean. And I thought to myself, how in the hell do I get clean in there? But I didn't say that to Mother. You didn't talk to your mother that way in those days. And I scraped that crud back, and I got in that old tub full of water, standing there washing and soaping myself up, old heating stove right here next to me, red hot. And somehow I managed to bend over and stick my rear against that hot stove. Burned a blister on my rear end about as big as my hand. Hurt me worse than anything had ever hurt me up until that time. And do you know, I've never had an obsession of the mind to stick my ass on a hot stove since then. I can still feel it today. I know exactly how that felt. Now, alcohol has burned me. Over and over and over and over and over, just as bad as that hot stove ever burned me, but left on my own resources, I cannot remember what alcohol does to me. Because I get to thinking about what it's going to do for me. And the idea of what it's going to do for me pushes out what it does to me, and I think it's okay to drink. And I end up drunk all over again. Complete failure of the kind of defense that keeps one from putting his hand on a hot stove. Page 24, last paragraph. When this sort of thinking is fully established in an individual with alcoholic tendencies, 
he has probably placed himself beyond human aid and unless locked up may die or go permanently insane. Now, if we've placed ourselves beyond human aid, then the fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous will not bring about recovery because the fellowship is made up of a bunch of human beings who are just as powerless over alcohol as I am. So if I'm going to recover, I've got to have more than just the fellowship. Page 25. There is a solution to this deal that's just been described in the first half of this chapter. Even though we've placed ourselves beyond human aid, there is still a solution to the problem. He said, almost none of us like the self-searching, the levering of our pride, the confession of shortcomings, which the process requires for successful consummation. I come into AA and I saw the steps on the wall talk about taking an inventory. I didn't want to do that. But I saw that really worked in others. I saw that people around the meetings that I was going to said that they had worked those steps. They had changed and they didn't want to, didn't want to drink anymore. And I wanted to be like them. But we come to believe in the hopeless and futility life that we've been living in. When therefore we were approached by those in whom the problem had been solved, there was nothing left for us but to pick up the simple kit of spiritual tools laid at our feet. We have found much of heaven have been rocketed, I like that idea, into a fourth dimension of existence of which we had not even dreamed. The great fact is just this and nothing less, that we've had deep and effective spiritual experiences. You notice that little asterisk right there? That wasn't in the first printing of the big book about cause anonymous. People began to write into that little office and ask Bill what he meant by spiritual experience and spiritual awakenings and those things. They said, we're doing the same thing that you do it, did, but we're not having those experiences. Are we doing something wrong? Well, Bill saw a little, a little blank spot here. So in the next printing of the book, he put that asterisk right there. The bottom of the page, it said fully explained on Appendix 2. He wanted us to know, make, make sure that we understand what he meant by those terms, spiritual experience and spiritual awakenings. Later on, on page 27, referring to the asterisk again, he said for further application, see Appendix 2. Again, making sure that we understand what he meant by those terms. Page 47, it says, please see Appendix 2. We want to make real sure that we understand what he meant by those terms, the spiritual experience. And I had a misunderstanding about those terms, the spiritual experience and spiritual awakenings. See, when I come to Alcoholics Anonymous, I had the spiritual knowledge of a seven-year-old boy. And way back when I was seven years old, I told myself, if I ever get big enough they can't catch me, I'm not going to those churches no more. And I got big enough they couldn't catch me. And when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, I had the spiritual knowledge of a seven-year-old boy. And you can imagine what it was. We used to have those revivals down there in the south. A lot. My mother always went and tried to drag us kids there. They, they preached all day and they had dinner on the ground. They sang all night. Just boring, boring, boring. You know? Well, one night my Aunt Mutch, and she, that's the reason we call her Aunt Mutch, because she's much of a woman. Aunt, Aunt Mutch got into the spirit of that one night, and the next thing I know, she was jumping over those pews. And then she was rolling around in the sawdust. She began to talk in strange language that I never heard of before. And she was having a spiritual experience. And when they talked of a spiritual experience in this book, I thought that's what I was going to have to have. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I was dreading that. I didn't think I could do that. But for people like me, I told you, did I tell you I've been in ignorance all my life? Okay. For people like me, they put this in the back of the book to make sure that I understood what they meant by those terms. If I'm going to have to have a spiritual experience, it'd be a good idea if I understood what one of them was. Don't you think? So let's go back to page 569, and let's read about the spiritual experience. He said the term spiritual experience and spiritual awakenings are used many times in this book, which, upon careful reading, and we know that alcoholics don't do careful reading, shows that the personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism has manifested itself among us in many different forms. I've already learned from that first paragraph something new. I've learned that it might be a spiritual experience or it might be a spiritual awakening. And in either case, it's going to be a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism. Our personality is made up by the way we think, by the way we feel, our ideas and attitudes toward life in general. So this spiritual experience or spiritual awakening will be a change in our personality, changing to something different than what we were when we first came here. Dr. Silva called it a psychic change. Bill said a spiritual experience is a sudden type. happens right now like his was. Spiritual awakening develops slowly over a period of a long time. We do better as we know better. But in any case, it's a change in our personality. Yet it's true that our first printing gave many readers the impression that these personality changes or religious experiences must be in the nature of sudden and spectacular upheavals. Happily for everyone, this conclusion is erroneous. That's why my Aunt Much had spectacular upheaval. <laughs> I'm glad, I'm happily for everyone, this conclusion was erroneous. I'm glad to hear that. Now, the first few chapters of a number of sudden revolutionary changes are described. Though it was not our intention to create such an impression, many alcoholics have nevertheless concluded that in order to recover, they must acquire an immediate and overwhelming God-consciousness, followed at once by a vast change in feeling and outlook. Among our rapidly growing membership of thousands of alcoholics, such transformations, though frequent, are by no means the rule. Most of our experiences are what the psychologist William James calls the educational variety because they develop slowly over a period of time. Quite often, friends of the newcomer are aware of the difference long before he is himself. He finally realizes that he has undergone a profound alteration in his reaction to life, that such a change could hardly have been brought about by himself alone. What often takes place in a few months could seldom have been accomplished by years of self-discipline. With few exceptions, our members find that they have tapped an unsuspected inner resource, which they presently identify with their own conception of a power greater than themselves, an inner resource. Remember that. Most of us think this awareness of a power greater than ourselves is the essence of, is the essence of spiritual experience. Our more religious members call it God-consciousness. Most emphatically, we wish to say that any alcoholic capable of honestly facing his problems in the light of our experience can recover, provided he does not close his mind to all spiritual concepts. He can only be defeated by an attitude of intolerance or belligerent denial. We find that no one need have difficulty with the spirituality of the program. 
Willingness, honesty, and open-mindedness are the essentials of recovery, but these are indispensable. There is a principle which is a bar against all information, which is proof against all arguments, and which cannot fail to keep a man in everlasting ignorance. That principle is contempt prior to investigation. See, I knew so many things that were not true when I arrived here. It was almost impossible to learn anything that was, was true because my mind had snapped shut against so many things. I already knew it all, I thought. Didn't know nothing, but I didn't know that. I was unaware. There seems to be one key word or one key idea running through this whole thing on spiritual experience, and that's the word change. Now, Bill Wilson repeats himself quite often in the big book, but when he does, he usually finds a different word, which means the same thing. Let's see how many times he said change on page 569 and how many ways he had of saying it. In the first paragraph, he called it a personality change sufficient to bring about recovery. In the second paragraph, he again said personality changes. But then he said in the nature of a sudden and spectacular upheaval. An upheaval is to change something entirely. In the third paragraph, the first sentence, he said, sudden revolutionary changes. To revolutionize something is to change it entirely. Third paragraph, last sentence, he called it immediate and overwhelming God consciousness. To overwhelm something is to change it entirely. Third paragraph, last sentence, he called it a vast change in feeling and outlook. Fourth paragraph, first sentence, he said such transformations. To transform is to change. About the middle of the fourth paragraph, he called it a profound alteration. To alter is to change. So the key thing in this whole thing is to change from what we were when we came here to something entirely different. We come here restless, irritable, and discontented. We come here filled with shame, fear, guilt, and remorse. We come here very selfish, self-centered, dishonest, self-seeking, frightened, and inconsiderate human beings. And because of those conditions, that always led us back to drinking. Now, if we can change from that to something entirely different, we will have changed our personality sufficient to bring about recovery from alcoholism. And that's all this spiritual experience is. has nothing to do with religion. I'm exactly like Joe. You know, I thought it was some great religious thing that you had to have. It has nothing to do with religion. A change in personality sufficient to recover from alcoholism. I told you when I first got here, I stood in the back of the rooms and I looked down at my feet and I was ashamed. I'd become everything I detested in a human being. And I didn't like me at all. And I knew if you knew me, you wouldn't like me either. So when they began to talk about change, I became interested in that. I wanted to change. So what I did, I looked around the halls of, of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I found me some heroes. I think we all do that, and I think it's necessary for a while. Charlie was one of my heroes. So I did everything I could do to be like Charlie. I almost made it. <laughs> Good thing I didn't. But 
I try, I emulate other people trying to change and be like, I didn't want to be like me. I want to be like you. See? And I tried to change. But I think the type of change that you're really talking about today is to change from what I had become to that which God intends for me to be. That's a marvelous experience in Alcoholics Anonymous that we must not miss. To be that which God intends for us to be. And he didn't make no junk, you see. Let's go back to page 25. That second paragraph. The great fact is just this and nothing less. That we have had deep and effective spiritual experiences. Now what did they do? Which have revolutionized or changed our whole attitude toward life toward our fellows and toward God's universe. The central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our Creator has entered our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. He has commenced to accomplish those things for us which we could never do by ourselves. If you are seriously alcoholic as we were, we believe there is no middle-of-the-road solution. We were in a position where life was becoming impossible. And if we'd passed into the region from which there's no return through human aid, we had but two alternatives. One was to go on to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation as best we could. Which is step one. And the other to accept spiritual help. Which is step two. This we did because we honestly wanted to, and we were willing to make the effort. You know, a lot of people in AA today say you better not talk too much about God. Or you'll run the newcomer off. And you notice the big book doesn't mind talking about God at all. The big book finally gets around to telling us we just got two, one of two alternatives. We can continue to drink until we die from alcoholism, step one. Or we can accept spiritual help, step two. And it seems as though there's no other decisions for us to make except between those two. My old sponsor helped me out in this area. He said, Charlie, you don't need to run to worry about running a newcomer off talking about God. He said, if you do, whiskey will put him right back in here. <laughs> and said, when he comes back, he'll probably be willing to talk about God. There's he no, was exactly right. There's no door three. This is one or two. Everybody has to make that decision. I can't make it for him. And the question is, if they run him off, where are they going to go? Where are you going to go? If, you don't, if this don't work, where are you going to go? There's no place else. This is it. This is the last house on the block. This better work or we're all doomed. Thank God it does work. Now, you would think, and I thought for a long time, that this idea of the great spiritual experience would have come from somebody in religion. And I'm always amazed when I look at this example on page 26 to see where this really came from. A certain American businessman had ability, good sense, and high character. Now, this is the guy named Roland Hazard. For years, he had floundered from one treatment center to another. He had consulted the best-known American psychiatrist. Then he had gone to Europe, placing himself in the care of a celebrated physician, the psychiatrist Dr. Jung, who prescribed for him. Now, he didn't go to Dr. Jung for a 28-day treatment program. He was there for a full year with Dr. Jung. They had a session every week. Though experience had made him skeptical, he finished his treatment with unusual confidence. 
His physical and mental condition were unusually good. Above all, he believed he had acquired such a profound knowledge of the inner workings of his mind and its hidden springs that relapse was unthinkable. Nevertheless, he was drunk in a short time. More baffling still, he could give himself no satisfactory explanation for his fall. So he returned to the doctor whom he admired and asked him point blank why he could not recover. He wished above all things to regain self-control. He seemed quite rational, well-balanced with respect to other problems, yet he had no control whatever over alcohol. Why was this? He begged the doctor to tell him the whole truth, and he got it. In the doctor's judgment, he was utterly hopeless. He could never regain his position in society and would have to place himself under lock and key or hire a bodyguard if he expected to live long. That was a great physician's opinion. But this man still lives and is a free man. He does not need a bodyguard, nor is he confined. He can go anywhere on this earth where the other free man may go without disaster, provided he remains willing to maintain a certain simple attitude. Now, some of our alcoholic readers may think they can do without spiritual help. Let us tell you the rest of the conversation our friend had with his doctor. The doctor said, you have the mind of a chronic alcoholic. I've never seen one single case recover where that state of mind existed to the extent that it does in you. Our friend felt as though the gates of hell had closed on him with a clang. He said to the doctor, is there no exception? Yes, replied the doctor, there is. Exceptions to cases such as yours have been occurring since early times. Here and there, once in a while, alcoholics have had what are called vital spiritual experiences. To me, these occurrences are phenomenal. They appear to be in the nature of huge emotional displacements and rearrangements. Change. Ideas, emotions, and attitudes are once the guiding forces of the lives of these men are suddenly cast to one side. Change. And a completely new set of conceptions and motives begin to dominate them. Change. In fact, I've been trying to produce some such emotional rearrangement within you. Change. <coughs> With many individuals, the methods which are employed are successful. But I've never been successful with an alcoholic of your description. Asterisk, bottom of the page, for amplification, see Appendix 2. Can you just imagine the humility of this doctor? In those times we're referring to, there was three leading psychiatrists in the world. Dr. Freud, Dr. Adler, and Dr. Jung. Adler and Jung were both students of Freud. Jung had fallen out with Dr. Freud and Dr. Adler on one thing and one thing only. Freud and Adler believed that all answers would lie within the mind. Dr. Jung believed that some answers might come through spirituality. You know, thank God Roland didn't get to Freud or Adler. <laughs> We'd still be sitting around psychoanalyzing ourselves, which unfortunately some AA meetings are doing that. Thank God they got to Dr. Jung. You know, he could have said, Roland, 
I believe you're suffering from a Valium deficiency. Let me write you a prescription. And you keep coming back, and we'll treat you for another year. Roland had plenty of money. But this little doctor was great enough to say, Roland, I've done all I can do for you. I can't help you anymore. With all my knowledge of the mind, I've done all I can do for you, and you are probably going to die from alcoholism. And Roland said, are there no exceptions to that? And he said, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Once in a great while. Alcoholics of your description have had vital spiritual experiences. He said, they're phenomena to me. I don't understand them. But they appear to be in the nature of huge emotional displacements and rearrangements. Ideas, emotions, and attitudes. For once the guiding forces of the lives of these men are cast to one side and replaced with a new set of ideas, emotions, and attitudes... And Roland said, oh, great, I'm a church man. And Jung said, no, that's not going to work for you. You're going to have to do something different. Now, we don't know whether he told him to go to the Oxford groups or not. But we know that Roland got in the Oxford groups, used their program of action, had a vital spiritual experience, took that to Abby Thatcher. Abby Thatcher took that to Bill Wilson. And this whole thing started from this little guy back here. When I, when I look at these 12 steps, and, and I really think about where they came from, it just absolutely blows my mind. You know, step one came to us from a non-alcoholic doctor in New York City called Dr. Silkworth. Step two came to us from a non-alcoholic psychiatrist on the other side of the world over there in Switzerland. The last ten steps to, came to us from a group of non-alcoholic people who were practicing first century Christianity to the best of their ability. You know, Bill always said, when he wrote the twelve steps, he said, I knew none of these things. And he said, all these ideas from these diverse places entered into my mind. And from there, I was able to write the twelve steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and they all came from non-alcoholic people. You know, We're proud of our 12 steps, and we ought to be. But we need to remember where they came from. And they really came to us from non-alcoholics. None of them came to us from alcoholics. Blows my mind every time I think about that. I think about the slender threads of AA. Roland came home and ultimately stayed sober about three months. His family was so happy that he was staying sober that they gave him a little vacation up in Manford, Ohio, I mean, Manford, uh, Vermont. Vermont, sorry. And they said, go up there and spend some time and enjoy yourself. Take a couple of friends and have a good time. The two friends that he took were Sebra Graves and another guy named Shep, who were all the members of the Oxford group. The slender thread was that the little friend that he took with him, his father happened to be the judge who had uh, Abby Thatcher in jail, who was getting ready to commit him to hospital for alcoholic insanity. It had that guy not stayed sober for three months, had that family not gave him a little vacation, had he not picked two friends to go with him, one of them's judge, dad was the judge, 
We may not be here. Slender threads, little things that are happening. We see the hand of God all through this book. You see, I believe that Alcoholics Anonymous started right over there when Roland was told by Dr. Jung that here and there, just once in a while, alcoholics have what we call a vital spiritual experience. To me, these are a phenomena. I don't understand it, but I know they exist. Today, as we sit around these rooms today, we can look at each other and say with assurance that here and now, every time an alcoholic will apply these things to their life, they too can, can recover. I see the hand of Alcoholics Anonymous all through this book, don't you? See, And it started way back over there. Silkworth knew what the problem was, but he didn't have a solution for him other than just don't drink. Dr. Jung had the solution, but he didn't know what the problem was. The Oxford group had a planned program of action. They weren't interested in the solution at all. You see, all this information gelled in the mind of one person, Bill Wilson, and he put it down on this book so that we too could learn what he learned. You is see? that odd or is that God? Is that right? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Bill finishes up now chapter 2. Want to do this? And Yeah, we're going to look at a little picture here now for just a moment to kind of illustrate what we've been talking about in chapter 2. We talked about the two powers necessary for our recovery. On the left-hand side of that sheet, you see the power of the fellowship that supports us where the older members through the sharing of their experience, strength and hope with the newcomer they provide enough support for the newcomer to be able to stay sober for a period of time and by the way it's a two way street as the older members support the newer members, the older members draw strength from that too great amount of power in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. It will be almost impossible today to be a member of AA and not begin to believe there must be some power greater than human power working within and throughout this fellowship. When you hear countless hundreds of people saying it's only by the grace of God or because of a power greater than I am, for because of God as I understand Him, I haven't found it necessary to take a drink for X number of days, weeks, months, years, or whatever. It's almost impossible to hear that over and over and over and over and not begin to believe there must be some kind of power greater than human power working in this, in this thing. The instant the newcomer begins to believe that, that opens the mind. And upon an open mind, they begin to investigate and upon investigation, they find that simple kit of spiritual tools laid at their feet. The 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Then they in turn begin to apply those 12 steps, hopefully with the help of a good sponsor. And as they progress through the 12 steps, they have a personality change sufficient to recover from alcoholism. Old ideas, old attitudes... Old emotions are cast to one side, replaced with a new set of ideas, a new set of attitudes, a new set of emotions. And they have undergone a spiritual experience or a spiritual awakening. Now, when that happens to the newcomer, then the newcomer now becomes an older member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And they can go back to the left-hand side of the sheet. 
and they can support the next newcomer that comes in. And when that newcomer begins to bleed, then they can take them by the hand and help them work their way through the steps, and they'll have a spiritual awakening, and they become an older member, and they can go back and help the next newcomer that comes in. Now, if you'll notice, we're basing older memberships not on how long you've been sober, but it's on the quality of that sobriety. The book makes it clear that you can't give away something you haven't got. And you can't help another person have a spiritual awakening unless you had one yourself. And somewhere down the line, AA got away from this book. It got away from this life-changing program. And they quit working the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And they began to stay sober on fellowship only. And when that happened to them, then in self-defense, they had to start measuring success by how long have you been sober rather than by the quality of that sobriety. And you see all kinds of people in AA today. Once in a while you see a newcomer who got a good sponsor and they got right in these steps and they have undergone a personality change. And you just love to be around them. They're always laughing and cutting up and having fun and doing everything they can for AA and trying to help other alcoholics and they've only been sober a few months. Then you see some others that have been in here 8, 10, 12, 14 years, treated it like a cafeteria, took some and left some. They're better off than they used to be, but you never know what kind of shape they're going to be the next time you run into them. One day they're up and the next day they're down, and they're kind of like a yo-yo going back and forth. Then you see some people that have been in here 20, 25, 30 years, Never worked a step. Damn proud of it. <laughs> and they're the ones that say, by God, if you want what we've got and you're willing to go to any damn... Some of those guys, you'd like to buy them a drink. You know, damn good and well, they would feel better. So, so we're not talking about how long we've been sober. We're talking about the quality of that sobriety. And only those that have had the spiritual awakening or spiritual experience can help another have the spiritual awakening and the spiritual experience. And I think Bill makes that quite clear in this, in this chapter, too. And as he finishes up that chapter, he, again, he probably sits down and reviews what he's done up to this point. He's probably able to say to himself, I could show them the problem in the doctor's opinion and my story, Bill's story, I was able to show them now the solution to that problem in chapter 2. But he said, they're not going to like that solution any more than I did. And remember how Bill rebelled against these ideas that Ebby was bringing to him. And he said, I think I better show them just exactly what's going to happen to them if they don't find that solution. And he sits down, he writes chapter 3, more about alcoholism. And in chapter 3, he talks about one thing and one thing only. Step 2 says, We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Well, if we've got to be restored to sanity, then that indicates we must be insane. And many alcoholics are highly offended when you bring that up. 
They say, oh, no, 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 I'm not insane. Yeah, I do some crazy, stupid things when I'm drunk. But when I'm sober, I'm much like normal people. Many other alcoholics say, well, we don't have any problem with that insanity because we remember the crazy, stupid things we did while drunk. In both cases, they're referring to the crazy, stupid things we did while drunk as insanity. No, that's not insanity. The crazy, stupid things we did while drunk is caused by a mind filled with alcohol. And alcohol lowers the inhibitions. And if your mind is filled with something that lowers the inhibitions, look out. You're going to do some pretty crazy, stupid things, all right. But that's not insanity. That's caused by alcohol itself. And it bugged us, and it bugged us, and it bugged us. Until finally we went back to the dictionary. We looked up the words sanity, sane, and etc. The big book, or the dictionary, defines sanity or sane as wholeness of mind or completeness of mind. If your mind is whole, if your mind is complete, then you can see the truth about everything around you. You make decisions based on truth, and life turns out to be pretty good. An insane mind is one that is less than whole, that cannot always see the truth about everything, makes decisions based upon a lie, and then life can become an absolute living hell. To be insane does not mean you're crazy. You know, if you're crazy, that means you've lost more than half your marbles. And you've got to be locked up somewhere to protect you and society from you. To be insane doesn't mean you're crazy. It just means you can't always see the truth. My friend Joe from Little Rock, he used an example which I think is the best I ever heard. He said, let's take a pie and set it here in front of us. And let's cut that pie in ten pieces. And you come along and I give you a piece of pie. He said, my pie is now less than whole, but I've still got 90% of it. Somebody else comes along, we give them a piece of pie, and our pie is now more or less than whole, but we've still got 80% of it. He said, insanity doesn't mean that you're all gone. It just means that you're not quite all here. (laughs) And when he said it comes to alcohol, it seems as though we're not quite all here because we can't always see the truth about alcohol and we make a decision based upon a lie and then we run into the truth and the truth cuts our head off for us so all through this chapter and he's going to do it in the best way in the world to teach he's going to use examples of the insane state of the mind just before we take the first drink Can we or can we not see the truth? He's going to use the man of 30. He's going to use a fellow named Jim. He's going to use the jaywalker. And he's going to use a fellow named Fred. And each time we're going to look in the mind just before we take that first drink. Can we see the truth or can we not? If we can, we're sane. If we can't, we're insane. Try to say this whole chapter is about insanity when you.
start reading this chapter, you're going to see a lot of words that uh, if you're not careful, you're going to think he's talking about different things, but he's only talking about one thing. Because you know he doesn't like to use the same words over and over and over again to describe the same thing. He likes to change those around. For instance, we'll see words like obsession, illusions, delusions, insanity, all that. But he's talking about the same thing. I looked those up here a while back. Obsession means a disturbing preoccupation with an idea or feeling. Uh, illusion is a mistaken idea. A delusion is persistent belief in something false, typical of some mental disorders. Insanity, foolish, not mentally sound. They all, don't all those four words sound like the same thing? Insanity. More about alcoholism. This could say more truth about alcoholism. See, I've heard all my life, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. If you're not free, it's because you don't know the truth. It's an attempt to know the truth. Most of us have been unwilling to admit we were real alcoholics. No person likes to think he is bodily and mentally different from his fellows. Therefore, it is not surprising that our drinking careers have been characterized by countless vain attempts to prove we could drink like other people. The idea that somehow someday we'll control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursue it into the gates of insanity or death. We learned that we had to fully concede to our innermost self that we were alcoholics. This is the first step in recovery. The delusion that we are like other people or present it may be has to be smashed. Now, like Joe said, he uses four different terms here. And if you aren't careful, you'll think he's talking about something different. But they all mean the same thing. Obsession. An idea that overcomes all ideas to the contrary. So strong it can make you believe a lie. Illusion. We all know what an illusionist is. An illusionist is a magician. And they can stand in front of you and with sleight of hands and a few props make you believe something that isn't true. Insanity. Insanity is a mind that is less than whole, that cannot always see the truth. Delusion. If you've deluded yourself, you've come to believe something that isn't true. So what we're going to do as we go through this chapter, we're going to look for the obsession, the illusion, the delusion, the insanity preceding the taking of the first drink. Let's go to page 32, second paragraph, a man of 30. So man of 30 was doing a great deal of speed drinking. He's very nervous in the morning after these bouts and quiet himself with more liquor. He was ambitious to succeed in business, but saw that he'd get nowhere if he drank at all. Once he started, he had no control whatever. Now, he made up his mind that until he'd been successful in business and had retired, he would not touch another drop. An exceptional man. He, may, he remained stark, raving dry for 25 years. <laughs> I mean, yeah. And retired at the age of 55 after a successful and happy business career. Then he fell victim to a belief which practically every alcoholic has, that his long period of sobriety and self-discipline had, had qualified him to drink as other men. Out came his carpet slippers in the bottle. In two months, he was in a hospital, puzzled and humiliated. He tried to regulate his drinking for a while, making several trips to the hospital in the meantime. Then, gathering all his forces, he attempted to stop altogether and found that he could not. Every means of solving his problem which money could buy was at his disposal. 
every attempt failed. Through a robust man in retirement, he went to pieces quickly and was dead within four years. Now, this case contains a powerful lesson. Most of us have believed that if we would remain sober for a long stretch, we could thereafter drink normally. But here's a man who, at 55 years, found he was just where he'd left off at 30. We've seen the truth demonstrated again and again. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. Commencing to drink after a period of sobriety, we're in a short time as bad as ever. If we're planning to stop drinking, there must be no reservations of any kind, nor any lurking notion that someday we'll be immune to alcohol. And we know the truth to be this. Once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. We've never seen one single case where one of us could go back and drink successfully. Now, to believe anything any different than that is to believe a lie. This guy believed that after 25 years of sobriety, he could now drink like other people. And based on that idea, he took a drink, triggered the allergy. Four years later, he's dead from alcoholism. Now, is his real problem the fact that he's physically allergic to alcohol or that he has a form of insanity that tells him it's okay to drink alcohol after being sober 25 years? The real problem of the alcoholic centers in the mind telling us we can drink rather than in the body that ensures that we can't drink. My wife, Phyllis, there says that once the cucumber becomes a pickle... It'll never be a cucumber anymore. Right. Always be a pickle. Let's go to page 34, second paragraph. For those who are unable to drink moderately, the question is how to stop altogether. We are assuming, of course, that the reader desires to stop. Whether such a person can quit upon a non-spiritual basis depends upon the extent to which he's already lost the power to choose whether he will drink or not. Many of us felt we had plenty of character. There was a tremendous urge to cease forever, yet we found it impossible. This is the baffling feature of alcoholism as we know it. This utter inability to leave it alone, no matter how great the necessity or the wish. How then we shall our readers determine to their own satisfaction whether they are one of us. The experiment of quitting for a period of time will be helpful. But we think we can render an even greater service to alcoholic sufferers and perhaps to the medical fraternity. So we shall describe some of the mental states that precede a relapse into drinking. For obviously this is the crux of the problem. What sort of thinking dominates an alcoholic who repeats time after time the desperate experiment of the first drink? Friends who have reasoned with him after a spree which has brought him to the point of divorce or bankruptcy are mystified when he walks directly into a saloon. Why does he? Of what is he thinking? Our first example is a friend we shall call Jim. Let's look at this example, and then after it we'll, we'll go to lunch. Let's look at Jim. Jim or Joe loves Jim. Yeah, I like Jim. I like him a lot. Everybody get, likes Jim. He gets screwed up with him once in a while. Let's see what he can do with him today. Joe. Okay. Our first example is a friend we shall call Jim. This man has a charming wife and family. He inherited a lucrative automobile agency. He had a commendable World War record, and he's a good salesman. Everybody likes him. See, I like Typical him. alcoholic, isn't he? You betcha. And he's an intelligent man and normal so far as we can see, except for a nervous disposition. He did no drinking until he was 35. In a few years, he became so violent when intoxicated 
They have to be committed. On leaving the treatment center, no, excuse me, on leaving the asylum, well, same thing, he came into contact with us. Now, we told him what we knew of alcoholism. They told him about step one. And the answer we had found. They told him about step two. And he made a beginning. Later on, we're going to see where step three is but a beginning. So apparently Jim took steps one, two, and three. And things immediately began to get better. His family was reassembled. He began to work as a salesman for a business he'd lost through drinking. And all went well for a time. But he failed to enlarge his spiritual life. We're going to find later on the only way we enlarge on step three is through four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, and eleven. Jim didn't do any of those. Just one, two, and three. To his consternation, he found himself drunk a half a dozen times in rapid succession. On each of these occasions, we worked with him, reviewing carefully what had happened. Now, these are good AA members. You know, this guy got drunk six times in a row. And every time he got drunk, they went over there and worked with him, carefully reviewing what had happened. You get drunk six times in a row today, they're probably not going to have anything to do with you. These were really good AA members. He agreed he was a real alcoholic and in serious condition. He knew he faced another trip to the treatment center if he kept on. Moreover, he would lose his family for whom he had deep affection. Yet he got drunk again. We asked him to tell us exactly how it happened. They're getting a little tired, Jim, now. <laughs> they, said, they said, my God, Jim, this is seven times in a row. You know, we're getting tired of coming over here every time you get drunk. Sit down here and tell us just exactly how this happened. So this is his story. I came to work on Tuesday morning. We read this book for years before we saw this. I came to work on... Tuesday morning. We're bad about those Mondays. Bad, bad about bad. Mondays. Yeah. He said, I remember I felt irritated I had to be a salesman for a concern I once owned. Now we're going to look at his mind. And we're going to see when he went from normal to abnormal, from sane to insane thinking. I remember I felt irritated I had to be a salesman for a concern I once owned. That's probably normal thinking. I think any of us that had to be a salesman for a concern we once owned, we'd probably be a little irritated by that, too. I don't think that's insanity. I had a few words with the boss, but nothing serious. The boss probably said, See, Jim, by the way, where were you all day yesterday, anyhow? <laughs> nothing real serious, just enough to get him irritated. Then I decided to drive into the country and see one of my prospects for a car. What's more normal than if you're a car salesman, You've had a few words with the boss. You want to get away from the shop, drive out in the country, see somebody we already know to try to sell a car to them. That's normal, sane thinking for an alcoholic car salesman. He said, on the way, I felt hungry, so I stopped at a roadside place where they have a bar. Had no intention of drinking. I just thought I might get a sandwich. What's more normal than if you're hungry to stop in a place and get a sandwich? The fact they got a bar is beside the point. We have no intention of drinking, period. We're hungry, and we're going to get a sandwich. Normal, same thinking for an alcoholic car salesman. I also had the notion I might find a customer for a car at this place, which was familiar, for I've been going to it for years. We're not going in there to drink. We're going to go in there and get a sandwich because we're hungry, and we just might find another customer. We've been going in there for years, anyhow. Normal, same thinking for an alcoholic car salesman. 
I'd eaten there many times during the months I was sober. So I sat down at a table and ordered a sandwich and a glass of milk. What's more normal than if you're hungry? To sit down at a table and order a sandwich and a glass of milk. Normal, sane thinking for an alcoholic car salesman. Still no thought of drinking. Ordered another sandwich and decided to have another glass of milk. Now, if you're hungry enough, nothing wrong with two sandwiches and two glasses of milk. Unless you're a member of Overeaters Anonymous, you better look at it. But that would be normal, sane thinking for an alcoholic car salesman. Now, now comes the squiggly writing. And he said, suddenly, that means right now, suddenly, the thought crossed my mind that if I put an ounce of whiskey in my milk, it couldn't hurt me on a full stomach. And this is absolute insanity. For him to believe that he can take whiskey, mix it with milk, drink it on a full stomach, and it won't hurt him. Now, based on the insane idea, he now makes a decision and takes some action. See, I ordered whiskey and poured it into the milk. And I vaguely sensed I was not being any too smart. I felt reassured that I was taking the whiskey on the full stomach. Now we've got it inside ourselves now. The phenomenon of craving takes over. And now then we're not going to be able to stop. The experiment went so well that I ordered another whiskey and poured it into more milk. That didn't seem to bother me, so I tried another. How many people in here besides me has ever put whiskey in the milk? What happens to it? Clabbers up, doesn't it? Okay. For you people who may go back out there and you intend to do this, use good scotch in the milk. It won't clabber it up. <laughs> Just a little information for you. I learned that. Thus started one more journey to the asylum for Jim. Here was a threat of commitment, the loss of family and position, to say nothing of that intense mental and physical suffering which drinking always caused him. He had much knowledge about himself as an alcoholic, yet all reasons for not drinking were easily pushed aside in favor of the foolish idea that he could take whiskey if only he mixed it with milk. Whatever the precise definition of the word may be, we call this plain insanity. How can such a lack of proportion or the ability to think straight be called anything else? Now, is Jim's real problem the fact that he has a physical allergy to alcohol or that he has a form of insanity that tells him it's okay to drink alcohol mixed with milk on a full stomach? The real problem centers in our mind telling us we can drink rather than the body. That ensures that we can't drink. Perfect example of the insanity of alcoholism. I think we better go to lunch, don't you guys think so? What? Let's try to be back by try to be back by one thirty, okay? We'll be through at five o'clock this evening. Good job. tell you this story while we're getting ready about the lady whose husband passed. He was, she was an ally, so she called the obituary column and wanted to make an obituary for him. And, she, and I said, well, what do you want to say? He said, well, he's dead. <laughs> said, is that all you're going to put in there, that he's dead? She said, yeah. 
said, surely you think of something else. He said, she said, I can't afford anything else, but he's dead. I said, well, we'll give you three more words just for the, because of your loss. And she said, okay, boat for sale. <laughs> That story about about is the little Catholic boy that wanted a bicycle for Christmas. And he went to his dad and asked him about it, and his dad said, Well, son, I'm sorry. He said, I, I can just barely provide food for you and your brothers and sisters. No way, and I can help you out with a bicycle. The little boy said, Well, what could I do? His dad said, Well, you never know. He said, Why don't you write a letter to God and ask him? You never know what's going to happen. So the little boy goes to his bedroom and he sits down at a desk and gets a pencil and a piece of paper and he begins to write. And he said, Dear Jesus, he said, I'm a little Catholic boy and I've always been good to go to church and I've never had a bike. He said, Oh, hell, that won't work. And he tore it up and threw it away. Sat there and thought a little while and got another pencil, another piece of paper and his pencil. And he said, Dear God, I'm a young Catholic boy. I'm 14 years old. I've always done my part in church, and I sure would like to have a... Oh, he said, hell, that won't work. He tore it up and threw it away. And he's sitting there looking around. He happened to look up on his dresser, and there's a little statuette of the Virgin up on the dresser. And suddenly his eyes lit up, and he jumped up, and he grabbed that statuette, reached in his underwear drawer, and got out a roll of socks, unrolled the socks, put the statuette inside, rolled them back up very carefully, put them way back in the back of the underwear drawer, sat down at his desk and got his pencil and his paper, and he said, Dear Jesus, if you ever want to see your mama again... (laughs) (laughs) It might have been one of us, I guess. Okay. We uh, <laughs> we finished before lunch. We finished with uh, with old Jim's story, and we finished up at the top of page 37. And there it told us that uh, whatever the precise definition of the word may be, we call this plain and.